Welcome to the Young Anthology Podcast, Analytical Psychology Seminars from the C.G. Young Institute of Chicago, Episode 8. It's been a long time since we've had an episode of the podcast, and I'm sorry, we've been behind schedule. We've had a few people ask, what can I do to support the podcast? How can I help there be more episodes? And what you can do is you could go to our website, youngchicago.org, and go to our store and download anything you're interested from there. We both have audio and video, individual classes and series, especially some of the audio series that are in-depth, cover a certain topic for 10 to 20 hours or so, which is much more depth than we can get into in the individual podcast episodes. So that's what you can do. And the more traffic we have through our store, the more um, of our resources we will put into publishing podcast episodes. We're constantly shifting our priorities based on responses from the public, whether uh, we find out that people need more lectures of a certain topic or they prefer things in a certain format. It really depends on public response. So if you want more podcast episodes, go to our store and download something that you're interested in, uh, and that will show us that for sure we should put more effort into producing podcast episodes, make sure it's regular and not interrupted by uh, individual projects that come up at the Institute. One important piece of news is that we have begun a membership program at the Institute. For $100 a year, receive 20% off of classes in person, also 20% off all audio and video downloads. Participate in the leadership of the Institute by becoming a committee member, and we have lots of different committees that serve different functions and create uh, events and stuff like that. You would have access to our library, and you would also be invited to member-only events, including our holiday party, and as we move forward, we'll be creating uh, more of those events as our membership program expands. So if you are interested in becoming a member of the Institute, you can easily become a member by visiting our store, again, youngchicago.org slash store. Today's lecture is Befriending the Beast with Anita Green, Ph.D., Anita Green is a Jungian analyst in private practice in Amherst, Massachusetts, and a teacher at the C.G. Jung Institute in Boston. She is also a Rubenfeld synergist who combines gentle body techniques with her analytic work. She lectures widely on the integration of body and psyche. Now here's the lecture. Um, Anita has asked me to be brief in my introduction of her and to give you just the essential facts about her. But I will say before I give you just essential facts that in recent years uh, in analytical psychology, there's been a growing interest in the body as part of the study of uh, Jung's work. And Anita is really one of the pioneers in this area, and she's bringing an entirely new and fresh approach to things. And I'd recommend that you perhaps pick up her article in the lobby at the break and get an idea about uh, a little bit more deeply what she's working on. She is a Jungian analyst and graduated from the C.G. Jung Institute in New York, where she is a frequent lecturer at the foundation and the institute and a member of the training program there. And I'd like to welcome her to Chicago, Anita Green. Thank you, Peter, for your gracious introduction and for meeting me at the airport. New York had its worst snowstorm of the winter today, 
and I've been traveling since about 11.30, your time. I think the hairiest part of it was trying to get to Newark Airport from my house, a trip that usually takes about an hour and 15 minutes and took me three hours. Um, my plane was canceled, and I was very fortunate to be able to get on another one that was late, so I'm, <clears throat> I'm very glad to be physically present here. <laughs> I began to wonder whether I would be as we waited about an hour and a half in the plane for our de-icing before we took off. And since I started late, I may not have time to cover everything, uh, but we'll see how far we go along. I haven't been in Chicago since the early 70s, back when uh, my husband and I did a series of workshops here on the masculine and the feminine. don't know if any of you are veterans uh, that go back that far. Ah, uh, yes. Um, then I was just beginning my analytical training and was struggling to put together uh, a way to work analytically in the Indian mode as well as body-wise. Um, I think I was just in the first year of my training, as a matter of fact, but I was still very much under my husband's aegis because he had already graduated from the training program some years ago and was the one that was um, well-known. And since then, I've come full circle, so it feels very good to be back here on my own. I've completed my analytical training. I have um, also studied four years with a woman named Alana Rubenfeld, where I've learned FM Alexander and Feldenkrais type body techniques, which I attempt to integrate into my analytical practice. Um, I've also done some academic work in psychology. And I feel, as I have been doing workshops and lecturing, that I've kind of come full circle into my own and on my own. So thank you for inviting me back. I will, um, I'm going to be speaking a bit about the beast and Beauty and the Beast. First, I'm going to spend a little time on some of the early creation stories, because I think they shed a great deal of light on the nature of the split between body and spirit. I'm not sure I can see after my day without these glasses, but I'm going to try. <clears throat> can everyone hear me all right? Good. When it comes right down to it, we mortals are rather puny latecomers to the planet. Long ago, when Earth was still filled with mystery, the forests verdant and virgin there lived many more beasts than humans. And not only ordinary beasts of varying shapes and sizes, but magical beasts, some with men's torsos and horses' bodies, uh, some with humans' bodies and goats' feet. There are triple-headed dragons and graceful unicorns, gods and goddesses with the head of a crocodile or a hyena or a wolf, or a falcon, or a cow. And because these animals had been here from the dawn of existence, long before humans arrived, they were endowed with potent energies for good and for evil. Humankind feared and worshipped them, and bowed down to them, and paid them honor, and in so doing, honored the beast in themselves. 
As humans grew in numbers and strength, the animals and the magical beasts retreated into the remote wildernesses. It became imperative to assert the ascendancy of human consciousness over wild animal energies and to become civilized. In a creation myth that has profoundly affected us all, a father god said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And he said to the male and the female he created, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So man became the master of the earth and its creatures. And the animal masters and the beasts, those that were not tamed, retreated even further into the wildernesses that were left. Over time, humans became increasingly arrogant in their view that the earth exists solely to serve them. This attitude has alienated us from the rhythm and wisdom of our own bodies and animal nature. We treat our bodies the way we treat the body of the earth. We pollute them. We drain their resources. We manipulate them as objects of scientific investigation. We try to subdue and control them. We don't listen to them. The hydrogen bomb may be nature's revenge, the ultimate monster, so to speak, against a consciousness divorced from nature that has lost any sense of the mutual interdependency of all creatures. At the dawn of human history, there was no separation between sky and earth, spirit and body. The earliest creation myths depict a world created out of a woman's body. All forms of life emerged and all forms eventually returned to Mother Earth. One is only to look at the large-breasted and large-buttocked statues of the mother goddesses from the late Paleolithic period in Europe to appreciate that their dominant meaning lies in the magical potency of their procreative functions. In these myths, the male element is given no prominence. One myth from the northwest uh, frontier of India goes like this. Is there a bit of echo with this or is it just me? It's okay? When, uh, okay, at first, Kujum Chantu, the earth, was like a human being. She had a head and arms and legs and an enormous fat belly. The original human beings lived on the surface of her belly. One day, it occurred to Kujum Chantu that if she ever got up and walked about, everyone would fall off and be killed. So she herself died of her own accord. Her head became the snow-covered mountains. The bones of her back turned into smaller hills. Her chest was the valley where the Apatanis lived. From her neck came the north country of the Tagins. Her buttocks turned into the Assam Plain. For just as the buttocks are full of fat, Assam has fat-rich soil. Kujum Chantu's eyes became the sun and the moon. 
From her mouth was born Kujin Popi, who sent the sun and moon to shine in the sky. And on the other side of the earth, in a Thompson Indian myth, we have a similar story. In this one, there are male elements, and the old wise one is masculine. There's a big argument going on between father, son, and mother earth. As a matter of fact, mother earth can't stand father, son, because he's ugly, nasty, and too hot. So father, son gets very huffy, and he takes the children, the stars and the moon, and he goes off with them and leaves mother earth by herself. And the old one comes by to reconcile them. And he tells father, son, that he cannot go away. He must remain fixed in the sky. And earth and sky must always look at each other all the time. And then he turns the woman, who is like earth, he transforms her. And her hair becomes the trees and grass, her flesh the clay, her bones the rocks, and her blood the springs of water. And he says, henceforth you will be the earth and people will live on you and trample on your belly. You will be as their mother, for from you bodies will spring and to you they will go back. People will live as in your bosom and sleep on your lap. They will derive nourishment from you, for you are fat. All of these marvelous earth mothers are very fat. When you die, you will return to your mother's body. You will be covered with her flesh as a blanket, under which your bones will rest in peace. As you see, I, I became quite fascinated by some of these early myths. When the earth is not created directly out of the woman's body, it is often fashioned out of the basic food of the tribe. For example, the corn ears of the corn mother, a clamshell from the depth of the ocean, or a coconut in the South Pacific. In one such coconut dwelled a woman cramped with knees up to her chin. I think she got bored being there, and she decided that she would do something about it, so she tears a piece of flesh off from her right side, and she creates the first man, and she puts him in charge of the waters. Now, I think that's a marvelous compensation for Eve having been created out of the rib, rib of Adam. And she takes another piece of flesh from her right side, creates another man, and puts him in charge of the heavens. And then she feels lopsided, so she starts tearing off pieces of flesh from her left side. And she puts all of these men and women in charge of various parts of the universe until all the flesh is gone, and that's how the universe is created. Now, the cosmic egg is also another very well-known image in creation myth. And uh, although it represents a more contained center and definite structure within the watery chaos or prim primal reality, it's still a symbol of fertility, a cosmic incubator. Um, in the Polynesian myth, a male god, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, Tairoa, I think, he dwells in the egg and then is expelled into a dark, dark void. And he tries as hard as he can to create the earth out of the word coming from his mouth. And he commands, he says, let... Um, Let's see, he commands, O rock, crawl hither, and no rock 
calls to him. And then he says, oh, sand, come hither, you know. And no sand comes toward him. So finally he gives up trying to create the universe out of the word. And he ends up making the eggshell, the top of it, the dome of heaven, and the bottom of it, the sand and the rocks. And then out of his own body, he creates the rest of the world. Um, For example, his spine becomes a mountain range, his ribs, the mountain slopes, his flesh, um, the fatness of the earth, his toenails, the shells uh, of of fish. But one thing he doesn't do is give away his head. He keeps his head and becomes master over it all. But the myth still ends by saying, man's shell is woman because it is by her he comes into the world, and woman's shell is woman because she is born of a woman. Now, there are instances in which, many more too, in which the body of the world is as much uh, a male god as as a woman's. In Norse mythology, the, the great giant Immer is slain and the world is formed out of his flesh. And in his Hindu cosmology, Purusha, the primal man, is dismembered and the universe is formed of all his parts and expressing the essential unity between macrocosm and microcosm. But in nearly all the cases of this early uh, creation myth, the creator dissolves into her or his creation through death or self-sacrifice, and more often than not, willingly. Now, when we come to the creation myths involving the separation of the world parents, we're confronted with the nascent phonic prima materia in which both feminine and masculine potencies are equally represented. In these myths, it is usually the offspring of the primordial mama and papa, cramped and confined in the darkness between their heavy bodies and desiring light and a life of their own that finally succeed in pushing them apart. I was thinking of the times when my children were small and my husband and I would try to sleep late on a Sunday morning and our children would come in and try to push us apart and say, hey, it's day, let's get moving. So I had a sympathy for primordial parents. Now, in the great Babylonian creation epic, the children of the goddess Tiamat and her consort, Apsu, surge back and forth between their bodies, upsetting them. And they finally tear them apart. And then they kill Apsu, the consort. And then one of her progeny, Marduk, forms, uh, gathers his brothers around him and um, becomes uh, the sun god and prepares for combat against his, his mother because he wants to take over. So he confronts the now raging Tiamat in her dragon form and through trickery and wiles slays her. And he casts down her carcass and he stands over it in a lordly manner and surveys it, tears open her belly, carves her up and creates the world out of the pieces. So here we have um, come here to a new kind of cosmic order. The earth still remains the source of birth but the sky gods carry more power. Chaos is not seen now as something which organically gives birth to itself, but as something to be fought and subdued and then given a more differentiated structure and form by the male sun god. Now, as the sky gods become more and more separate from the earth, 
and farther and farther away, we begin to observe monotheistic tendencies in them. The necessary condition for greater consciousness in the universe seems to require a movement toward what we now perceive uh, today as belonging to masculine consciousness. Namely, and these are just a few of the things, the ability to transcend the cyclical patterns of the processes of nature and its eternal round. The capacity for continuing existence separate from the earth as mother, allowing for linear rather than cyclical experience of time. The ability to generate models, images in the mind that precede the coming into existence of the thousand and one things. In an Egyptian myth, we have the beginnings of this in the great beetle god of creation, Kepri. In this particular myth, he says, all things came into being only after I came into being. I planned with my face. I made in concept every form when I was alone. There came into being a multitude of forms of beings, the forms of children and the forms of their children. I was the one who copulated with my fist. You don't need the earth mother anymore. I masturbated with my hand. Then I spewed with my own mouth. I spat out what was shoe, and I sputtered out what was tefnot. Now, the great culmination of this movement toward the distancing of the father and sky god from the earth mother and body is in the Hebrew myth of creation, where we're presented with a father god detached from the world, perfect, having no beginning and no end, all-powerful, all-knowing, who can create the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. He creates not out of his own body fluids, as Kepri does, but out of the word, the logos, the mind. The word, the spirit of God, moved over the face of the waters and created the heavens and the earth. Each act of creation over six days that God worked at it begins and God said let there be light waters creatures man and they came into existence I um, as I was writing this my thoughts wandered to what terrifies me the most and it's sitting at an empty desk with a blank piece of lined yellow paper in front of me and someone telling me that I must make up a lecture for uh, the Friday night lecture uh, in Chicago. Um, and I'm supposed to do one, two, three, and then A, B, C, and kind of put it down all in a logical and orderly fashion. That terrifies me. It's like creating out of nothing. And then I happened to look around at my dining room table where I was working, and there were piled in all sorts of disarray, papers, clinical examples, books on creation, fairy tales, a plant I brought in to get better sunlight, apple cores, some empty mugs, some Christmas decorations I'd neglected to put away, uh, pens, pencils, and as I surveyed my small universe, I breathed a sigh of relief and I said, I think maybe I can create out of this chaotic material. So I, I had to laugh that I felt very comfortable creating out of nothing. It's impossible for me. 
And of course, I project that it's very easy for others to do. As a woman, I am not one to moan the advent of the patriarchal age, nor the very real values it has carried for both men and women. I wouldn't be here tonight, actually, talking as a Jungian or about the individuation process if it hadn't been for masculine consciousness separating out from the matriarchal matrix. But, for example, when our president asserts that we can control and dominate the world from the stars, we confront an attitude carried to its ultimate madness. We are in danger of being blasted back into patriarchal nothingness if this attitude continues. Um, I couldn't agree more than what Eric Neumann says in, in uh, Depth Psychology in the New Ethic. He says, when we speak of Earth, it is symbolically identical with the body, just as flight from Earth is always at the same time flight from body. The human state is special in that psychically the tension of the opposites, body, spirit, consciousness, unconsciousness, is a historical development that leads to a separation of the opposites. This separation is actually necessary for the development of consciousness. Its exaggeration has, however, proven itself to be catastrophic for the individual and for the collective. I experience the pain of that split between body and psyche every day in my patients. I have experienced it deeply within myself. Ever since um, I began to realize how split off my body was from the rest of me. And that happened during my first an analysis by, with an appropriately timed touch of my analyst when I'd gotten in touch with an extremely vulnerable child. I remember um, my analyst taking my hands in his and holding them and I burst into tears and a voice spoke to me at that point and said you have forgotten how important touch and experiencing the body is for your sense of self and that was such an incredibly powerful experience um, there was no way that I could not heed that um, and that is the direction I've been going in to try to heal the split first in myself and to bring spirit and body together so that I experience them fluidly as one thing, to be fully incarnated. I think, you know, that's why Gene Owl's books, Clan of the Cave Bears, Valley of the Horses, and now the Mammoth Hunters, are so popular because she takes us back, she projects uh, what we need to do for ourselves back into Paleolithic times and shows us what it might be like to be connected to nature again. We have there a very complete woman who is um, in harmony with the earth and its resources, who lives by her wits, who knows herbal medicine, who can hunt with the, with the best of men, and so forth. Now, in 1757, quite a bit earlier, Another woman sat down and wrote the tale of Beauty and the Beast. Her name was Madame Le Prince de Beaumont, French woman. And she tells in her tale 
although she probably didn't know she was doing this, of the bankruptcy of the patriarchal tradition and beautifully expresses the way to heal the split between body and spirit or body and psyche in our culture. Tomorrow in my workshop, I shall retell the tale in its entirety. Tonight, I will focus only on those parts which, which suit my purpose for this lecture, namely the beast. How many of you are familiar with the tale? Most of you. Good. As you remember then, the tale begins when the father, a rich merchant, loses his fortune. In other words, the patriarchal head of the family is bankrupt. He must leave his elegant townhouse with his family, his daughters and his sons, and return to a simple farmhouse and learn again the cycle of the seasons, plant and harvest his own food, grow and weave, and make their own clothing. As though a reconnection to the earth is vital. Now, we don't always do what is needful in our lives. Jung used to say if we don't go willingly, willingly we'll, we will be led kicking and screaming toward our destiny. But it, usually we have to be in very dire straits. And I have um, both men and women coming to me. Uh, this would be um, perhaps a typical dream. Um, this is of a woman in her 30s, a professional woman. She's a computer analyst. Uh, she never wears anything but slacks. She identified with the father growing up. She went up into her head. Um, she had to think everything through and try to find the logical answer. And um, she was falling apart because she could not cope anymore with that attitude. One of her first dreams was of a plane crashing into the water. And she, with the help of an older woman, swim out to the plane and rescue a weak young girl. They get her out just in time before the plane sinks beneath the water. And with the help of the older woman, they bring her to the shore. And when they get on the shore, they realize that there's nothing there, that they will have to forage for their own food, they will have to do everything from scratch, cooking their own food, making their own clothes, getting their beds ready for nighttime. And so what is needful here for this woman is to go out of her head, I, the plane crashing down into the water, to rescue her damaged young girl child and to learn how with an older woman, and this may have been an early sense of a transference dream onto me, how to survive, how to return to a more grounded, embodied, and organic process in her life. Like the father in the tale and his family have to learn the same thing. Now in this tale there is no personal mother and we are not told why. 
Maybe she died at the birth of the youngest daughter. Now, when there is no personal mother, there is no source of identification for the daughter with a mature kind of instinctuality or feminine experience. Therefore, the daughter is going to, therefore, the Oedipal situation gets heated up, but the daughter is going to experience the anima of the father. And that becomes the model of what the feminine should be. And the daughter then grows up in the patriarchal culture, trying to live up to the expectations or images of what the feminine should be that comes from the masculine psyche. Now, tomorrow in my workshop, I will give examples of the absence of the personal mother. Now, I don't mean that necessarily by death or just non-presence, but the lack of a mother being connected to her own deep femininity and therefore not passing it on to the daughter, and the daughter having to get what she can from the father. I have many women in my practice who lack a connection to that deep well of their own femininity because there was no personal mother in some grounded sense. Now, this same woman that I just described with the plane crash had another dream much farther on into therapy. Sometimes when there is no personal mother, a mother I mean who feels comfortable in her femaleness and in her body and can convey uh, the beauty and the joy of that to the daughter, the daughter has to reach down into the archetypal layer of her psyche and find images to heal that. And later on, this woman found herself masturbating, surrounded by a circle of older women who were moving around her and affirming her in her action. Back to the fairy tale. As they're struggling, with the land and the Mother Earth again, a call comes from one of the port cities that one of the ships has been found. And the father takes off again with high hopes. You know, we always hope it's going to be able to work out the old way. And we <laughs> keep trying it. Um, the daughters, of course, um, tell him that they want to, they think that they're going to be able to go back with their rich friends now and they order all sorts of brocaded dresses and jewels for him to bring back. And Beauty seems to intuit, this is the name of the youngest daughter, seems to intuit that um, this isn't going to happen. And as, um, and so the father goes off. And of course, when he gets there, he re his creditors have beat him to it and he's worse off than before. And he's left with absolutely nothing besides has to make the journey home in the dead of winter and in the dark night. And he's, he's very, very desperate and tired and cold. And he finally finds some shelter um, in the, the trunk of a tree. And when light comes the next morning, as he's trying to find his way home, he comes upon a path which looks like an old path, but it's been out of use perhaps for centuries. And he, he, he um, cuts his way along it. Uh, he can hardly make it out. And finally it becomes a little better marked until it turns into an avenue uh, surrounded by orange trees. And the atmosphere warms up and the sun comes out and he sees at the end of the avenue a magnificent castle. And he goes up to it, 
up the agate steps and into the door, and he looks all around and sees nobody. And finally, he finds a room where a fire is burning, and as you know the tale, the food is set out delicately, and there's a delicious wine, and he's tired, and he eats, and he falls asleep. And the next morning, still, no host arrives. And as he sits there, he begins to fantasize, well, maybe all of this is meant for me and for my family. And as he goes out to get his horse, he's going to bring his family to live there. And on the way, he sees a hedge of roses. Now, if you know the tale, the only thing that Beauty has asked her father to bring back is a rose. He says, well, at least I can take a rose back to my daughter. And he plucks the rose, and at that moment, he hears a terrible roar, and the beast speaks behind him in an enraged, terrifying voice and says, who told you you could gather my roses? This is a theft worthy of death. This is a necessary theft. And as with all necessary thefts, such as the stealing of fire by Prometheus, the eating of the apple, there is a price to pay. A loss of innocence, and the pre, which is the prerequisite for the growth of consciousness. What this means is that beauty and her father must now reckon with the dark instinctual forces of their own nature, with their beast. And the price, the theft of the rose, saving the father's life, redeeming the impoverished patriarchy, is that beauty must willingly go to live with the beast on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, this is very interesting to me because the road toward greater consciousness before has always been to subdue, to kill off, to gain ascendancy over our animal natures. In the fairy tale, the direction is shown to be back, to find our way back along the path that we have even forgotten was there, to reconnect again on a day-to-day -day living basis with our beastly nature and to relate again to our instinctual animal energies. Now, just as an aside, in this fairy tale, the beast is perceived as masculine because it's essentially, of course, beasts are feminine too, but it's essentially a tale of a woman's initiation into womanhood via a release from the idealized father bond and a confrontation with her own instinctual man and then a making a creating for herself of an individual relationship to a man you might say a more modern tale of beauty and the beast might be D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's lover here the bankrupt patriarchal attitude is represented by Lady Chatterley's husband who is paralyzed from the waist down and Melora the gardener is the potent instinctual man so the fairy tale really talks about, and we'll get into this more tomorrow, the split between the spiritual aesthetic and natural instinctual elements in masculine psychology and in the woman's animus. I know this well because long, long ago I had two dreams happened in the same night. The first dream, I was a child. 
and I was kind of reclining on something. And there was a man standing behind me, and he had on, as I drew it, he had on blue trousers and a white shirt, and he was very blonde and blue eyes. And I knew he was a guardian angel because he levitated slightly off the earth. And I felt very protected. The, the second dream, the same night, I was in my house, and something terrible was trying to get in. And it would knock on one door, and I would run to it and bolt it. And then it would go to another door, and I'd run to that door and bolt that door, until finally there was only one door left, and I couldn't quite get there fast enough. And the dream ended with me pushing with all my might to keep this force out, and whatever that was on the other side, pushing with all his might to get in. And when I drew it, it was a masculine figure, very dark, dark, very phonic. He had a codpiece so that his genitals showed. He stood like this, very powerful. And the message of those two dreams was clearly, Anita, if you want to remain protected and daughter-like, that's all right, you can. You have a guardian angel. But if you want to come into your full womanhood, you're going to have to let that dark man in. I think that's why I love Beauty and the Beast so much, because it is very much a story of part of my journey. I do believe that one of the reasons the Beast often appears as masculine in a woman's dream or women's psychology is that these qualities such as raw instinctuality, warrior-like fierceness, lecherous libidinal drives, ruthlessness, which used to be all contained within the original great goddesses like Imana and Hathor and Ishtar. Um, when male masculine conscience is separated out, uh, men seem to take these over as parts of their own, um, as, as their own qualities. So that very often the beast appears in a woman's dream first as masculine, far away from the present, her present female ego consciousness. So that we both perceive, I think, the more aggressive and sexual beings as masculine. Now, um, when I was working originally on Beauty and the Beast, and it's amazing how your patients bring to you exactly what you're working on, whatever it is, in your psyche or giving a lecture, um, a woman came to me. Um, she was very tiny. She had a girl-like uh, voice, and you could imagine her curled up in a man's lap. As a matter of fact, she looked for a tender, fathering kind of man. And she began to have dreams when I was working on the first presentation I did on Beauty on the Beast of terrible, savage Indians, ferocious samurai-type men. Um, and she would bring these in. And finally, I said, well, why don't we work on that? Sometimes I have someone, even without working uh, with them on a table or on the mat, go right down into their body and do an act of imagination. And she did. And I said, now, you may need to protect yourself. This was a, a gorilla-type man this time. So she kind of, she built a fence that she could see through, but that she would not uh, 
feel in danger from this man. And they had a conversation. And he was terrifying. Um, he was shirtless and hairy, and his chest glistened. Uh, he was unsocialized, nonconformist, non-intellectual. Um, this young woman, I neglected to say, was also very mu much up in the head. Um, she also had identified with a father who was an editor of a newspaper, and she became an editor. But she was having a great uh, difficulty asserting her authority now as she was going up the ladder. And this is where her authority was in all of these men that were coming in the dreams. And um, as she went on in the act of imagination, this gorilla man said, you know, I've been living in the wilds too long. I really would like to come back into civilization. But I need your help. I need you to help me. And she said that she would try. And at the end of the imaginal part of the session, they exchanged gifts, and one of them was a rose. Um, you can imagine how amazed I was. The beast in Beauty and the Beast wants to come back into our civilization, too. He's more than willing. His only stipulation is that we are willing. Beauty must go willingly to relate to him. Now, what enrages the beast is that the father, or the patriarchal attitude here, thinks it can just have the rose for the simple plucking. You know, I'll just take it. And whatever else that rose symbolizes, and it symbolizes a lot, at a very deep level, it signifies the whole making effect of Eros. And it can't be had for the plucking. Wives who uh, are married to men who uh, find it difficult to be feelingly related will tell you it can't be had for the plucking. It must be tended over time with care and watered and pruned and weeded and given the, the right amount of sunshine and shade. Here we see how beauty as the woman and the man's anima as beauty must be allowed to grow and to flourish before she can become that mature mediator between these two elements of masculinity. Now, a couple of things about the beast. Am I running over yet? No. Can you stand a bit more? Okay. The beast is a gardener. Melor, in Lady Chatterley's Lover, is a gardener. And roses do not grow in the father's garden. That's why beauty asked him to bring one back. And the gardens around the beast castle are exquisitely fragrant and abundant. He has a green thumb, this beast. One of the reasons that body awareness is so inaccessible to, mo to modern consciousness is that if we are far away from the beast in ourselves, we are even farther away from the plant that vegetative place of being, non-verbal, non-representational. In a culture which values doing uh, and performance over being, our bodies pay a great price. I mean, ulcers, heart attack, colitis, just to mention a few ways our body acts up. Now, the 
I find that the kind of non-intrusive and gentle touch techniques I use in my practice often can drop someone into that vegetative place, and sometimes for the first time. I worked um, with a, a man in his 40s at one point. He was what one would call a workaholic. His marriage was falling apart, and we talked about his slowing down, and he had a dream which scared me where he was coming down a hill and the car was out of control and he crashed into another car and the steering wheel hit his chest and he blacks out and I was really fearful he was going to die of a heart attack. He was a, a very much a type A person. And finally, because he was curious about my total and my mat, he decided to try out this body work that I do. And as I attempted to lift his head and to release his shoulder um, and lift his arm, he, he would do it for me. He would help me. And when I would suggest he give me the full weight of his head, that he didn't have to help me, he realized, he said, I must do this all the time. Everything I do in life needs my help to get it going. And then as he could let go and entrust himself more to letting his limbs be moved, he said, now I know what you mean when you talk about the receptive. It's when I can permit something to happen and then let it in. And before we had done body work, I could have talked to myself blue in the face about yin and receptive. And he didn't get really had that experience in his body. And often when patients come to me, um, I do straight analytical work, I combine body work, I use also bioenergetic approach also. But sometimes I see that a person needs to go deep into this vegetative place. And often when they do and they begin to feel pleasure in their body for the first time through touch, I will get such remarks as, um, this, I like this too much, um, this must be bad. I feel too good. Um, I'm being selfish. My mother always told me I was self-centered. And on and on. And it takes them right back to where they were unable to enjoy maybe just being held in their mother's arms because her touch was, was so noxious and the expectations were so great. Coming through the skin one to another. I had a very successful businessman with whom I worked for a while, um, and he came because he felt he had accommodated so much to his mother's image of him that he had lost any sense of his authentic, authentic self, and he wanted to try to reconnect to that. And his mother had just recently died of lung cancer, and I took a look at his chest, and he didn't breathe there. There was absolutely no movement at all. Um, it was permanently, although not really barrel-chested like a lot of men are, it was permanently expanded as though he had to keep it um, enlarged in order to make sure he got the next breath, but he really didn't permit himself to take it. And one had the feeling that his mother, you talk about the father's anima and the expectations of the daughter, we have to, to talk here about the mother's animus and what that does to the son. It was like she had puffed him up with that, but not permitting him to take his own breath.
And as we worked with it, and I had him try to breathe there, and I worked in the musculature, and it softened a bit, we both experienced about a five-year-old living in his chest. And sometimes, even though I know I'm working with an adult body, I will actually uh, uh, see a small child. And it looked like one of the reasons he couldn't get a breath, because he was carrying around, repressed into his adult musculature, this image of the child. And we worked with some of the memories around that age. I can often see the age of the child in the person that I'm working with. And that tells me around the time that um, traumatic things happen. Um, another man I worked with was really barrel-chested, had a hard time dropping into that animal or vegetative place because he had to be on guard against a witch-like mother all the time. And when he started working in that area, he had an image of a black, malevolent, I have to be careful of that word because I, I used to pronounce it malevolent, a black, malevolent cat came and sat on his chest and wouldn't let him take a breath. And a voice, which he associated to his mother, said, How dare you take a breath? You belong to me. And he had to fight her off in order to be able to take a breath. No wonder he couldn't go into his body, because it meant going back to the mother's body, and that could not be tolerated. Um, Sometimes it's very difficult for men to permit themselves to go into this place. It's dangerous for a woman, but even more dangerous, I think, for a man who must separate out from the mother's body. And I had one man who went into a trance state at times when I worked on him. And when he finished in the quiet of the session, he would look at me and say, is it all right for me to do that? Am I permitted to do that? And each time I would give him my permission to do that. And that's what he needed in order to reconnect. And he began to have bring dreams in, and I keep very close track of dreams as I work with body, of various anima figures, some of them of women that he felt guilty about his relationships with, and there was a kind of reconciling healing going on by his permitting himself to be. And to trust me, I mean, that was incredible for this man, to be as vulnerable and defenseless as he was with me. Okay. Um... I have some more to say about the beast. Um, how do you feel? Do you want to get up and stretch? All right, let me say a few more things and that'll open it. Those that do, please do, because I uh, uh, take care of your bodies first. I mean, if I stand up here and give a lecture on the body and then keep you all tied to your seats, that's... Okay, ten more minutes. I will uh, shorten some things so that there'll be some time for questioning okay so this beast is a gardener and he knows how to vegetate oh I'll have to tell you this story Um, this is a woman who's been working with me for about five years and she came in with this dream about um, well several months ago she said um In the dream, she's watering some plants in my home. I have one of my offices is in my home. And um, these were plants that she had brought uh, before, but she'd forgotten they were there. They were her plants. Uh, Perhaps I'd been taking care of them. That's not clear in the dream. But she is now watering them and taking care of them. And there were also lots of animals around, uh, dogs and cats, and one special cat for herself. And some of the male dogs are rubbing up against each other, and the sperm is flying all over the place. It's 
just marvelous. And um, she said to me, she laughed, um, she said, and guess who you were? And I said, um, I couldn't guess. And she said, you were the doctor of veterinary medicine. I can't tell you how tickled I was to be the doctor of veterinary medicine. Because this woman came in with such a negative mother complex. One of her first dreams was, was being in a dark, moon-like room and trying to get out. And for doorknobs, there, instead of doorknobs, there were spears pointing at her so that there was no way she could get out without killing herself or wounding herself. And she would have a range of dreams about animals, rabbits being sacrificed, um, other animals outside her house starving, wanting to get in, uh, just terrible kinds of dreams, um, animals being boiled in pots. So this was um, a dream that we really rejoiced in, and I just love being head of veterinary medicine. <laughs> it's very hard um, when the, the primary experience, of, to get to this vegetative level, when the primary experience of the mother has been highly charged and unpleasant. You get that through her body right away, the way she handles you and the way she touches you. That's our first sense of who we are. And Neumann, of course, says that the, at birth and infancy, the self is primarily a body self, and we really need pleasurable body experience. It's crucial in rooting the child's nation ego firmly in its own individual body and its ego self-axis. Now, let me just uh, go through a couple of things, and then you can ask questions. The beast is, is an enchanted man, actually. Um, he has been enchanted, and it isn't at all clear in Madame de Beaumont's version why. In some other versions, it's intimated that he's done something like being disrespectful to fairies or to older women. The worst sin is that he raped an orphan and then was um, uh, bewitched by an evil sorceress. But what happened is that he stepped out of bounds of what a good little boy should do. And tomorrow I will talk about how... Um, now, these are mothers brought up, of course, in a patriarchal culture whose highest value has been the spiritual animus. So when the son acts instinctual or masturbates or does some horrible things with his bodies, he becomes um, told that he's bad. And uh, I believe that... Um, I shall explain how this failure of the man to separate out from the power of the mother leads to the son's enchantment by the mother's shadow as unredeemed sorceress. And that enchantment does not allow him to claim and integrate his beastly instinctual nature. So we'll talk about mothers and daughters and, and uh, sons and mothers. Um, the other thing I was going to say about the beast is that this kind of enchantment, the body is bad, I was going to talk a bit about shame, that we all repress body awareness because uh, it does shameful things. Things around toilet training, things around feeding issues, and if mother or father denigrate their own bodies and are not connected to them, we feel that shame in our own body. So I think part of that enchantment and why it's hard to get back to that level of awareness is that we struggle all our lives to get above it. And it's just so noxious. I've had people curse me and not just in jest. They said, I didn't know how awful I felt about myself until I worked with you. Um, to me, that's progress because... So that shame felt bodily 
is one of the most difficult emotions to deal with, and that's what one gets back into. That's why body is inaccessible, because we feel it's dirty and disgusting. And sometimes when I work around the hip area, particularly with women, if men by and large have a harder time to drop into their vegetative side, women feel by and large more shameful about their bodies. And I will feel as I'm releasing a hip joint, for example, a wave of revulsion kind of going through my own body. I pick this up with my my intuition is in my fingertips. I know I don't feel repelled by their body. And I ask them what's going on. And very often a woman will say, I don't know how you can touch me there. It's so dirty and disgusting. Once when I was working with a woman and I couldn't really feel the shape of her buttocks, I, I just lost her somewhere. I said, what's going on? And she said, I was just remembering when I became an adolescent and got some fat on my hips and my mother used to call me laundry bag. So all of that comes up through touch. Shame, and then the other thing I was going to talk about was the fact that in the Beast Castle are all sorts of marvelous um, games, wonders, entertainments, libraries, picture galleries, rooms that you can go in and look at yourself in mirrors, a room with curtained windows that you can pull and have pantomimes and all sorts of entertainments play themselves out so that we pressed into the body lies in large part our imaginal functioning too and I find that working with body releases that often for people for the first time I'll just mention that and then I will I will stop and you can ask more questions if you want about that um, getting in touch with the child is, is another one I was going to and also how unions tend to focus on the the image-generating uh, components of the complex rather than the uh, energy elements and how perhaps we forget or ignore that uh, how a person carries themselves, um, their habitual posturings, the shapes they make as they greet others, um, gestures are also uh, um, signs of the archetypes as well as the images we have in fantasies and dreams. So thank you. Take your break, and then whoever would like to stay can come back, and we'll have some questions. I think maybe it's a good time to begin again. Um, there was one thing I, I would have mentioned if I'd had time, and I think when I was talking about the uh, shame of the body and how women, you know, diet themselves to death um, and how the image of the feminine today is such an, as sort of an adolescent anorexic boy. Um, women don't have bellies or hips anymore to be able to create the earth out of their own bodies. But I ran across in a book I was reading, um, and you've seen it, it's uh, by Kim Chernin, called The Obsession, Reflections on the Tyranny of Slenderness. She pulls together quite a bit in that book. And she tells about uh, women in uh, Western Samoa, women over middle age, um, who are distinctly fat by our standards. As a matter of fact, the women get fatter after the birth of each child. And uh, this is honored. Uh, they move with ease in their big bodies, and they're admired for it. And it's not until they're middle-aged and have some flesh to jiggle around that they're permitted to perform the most humorous and lascivious dances on the festival days. 
uh, that they're considered sexy enough to do it. I mean, this is an honor. So uh, I couldn't help but think when I was in Chicago of the refrigerettes. <laughs> I thought that was <laughs> marvelous. <laughs> um, all right, I'll, I'll entertain any questions that you might have or any elaborations of whatever. Yes. Yes. Are you talking particularly about a depressed mother or, or just a mother who doesn't have any sense of herself as a woman or feel good in her body? Well, I, I can just say to that, I think it affects the way he will feel about women, his wife, mothers, um, have a, a great effect on that. Um, I, I've worked with men who, well, I've worked with a lot of men, and I mean, none of us have perfect mothers uh, in that regard. Uh, very often, um, he will carry around a certain depression that's noticeable in his body, uh, and we may not even notice it because he's gone up into his head and compensated for it. There's one man I work with who um, stands way back on his heels. I'm sure I could knock him over if I just gave him one push. And he sits back in the chair, and he can't look at me. It's very difficult looking at me directly with his eyes. And we had a mother who uh, was quite, uh, didn't, didn't touch him or hold him very much, uh, and um, he's suffering for it in terms of a lack of relationship to his own body. It's like he was thrown together, you have that sense. I mean, I, talking about what that does to a son on the bodily level. Um, I was trying to think of... I'm sure you can all think of many examples. There are many different ways that it, it can go. Um, I will have lots more examples from my practice and stories about um, mothers and sons and the way that... Mothers enchant their sons right out of their instinctual birthright. Um, there was one, I'll, I'll just tell a story of one other man who, um, had to talk a lot. I mean, that's what he did. He was very fearful of being quiet. And, um, he had a very castrating mother, which showed up in the dreams. And when he was quiet with me in the session, um, he was very scared because he wasn't sure what I might do to him. In other words, unless he was putting out some kind of verbal, maybe yang energy directed toward me, it was very hard for him to tolerate being in my presence. Um, sometimes when this turns around and the Oedipal feelings will start coming toward a female analyst that maybe have been so buried they were hardly ever felt toward the personal mother even. Um, I had one young man of that sort who came in for about a year, a year and a half, and couldn't figure out where his feelings toward me were. Um, he was much closer to his father and his mother was pathologically rejecting of him. And all of a sudden, uh, through the work and through some of the body work, this began to come out, and it came out on a very primitive level. And he said to me, he said, you know, 
Mm, that's what he wouldn't be enough. He said, I want to train you in my room and have you there at every moment <laughs> that I need you. Um, and it, 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 it's, it's what uh, he didn't get. <laughs> it is <our> mother. <laughs> um, and it affected him in his, you know, his ability not to be able to relate at a very deep level to other women. Because just because he was fearful that when it came out, it would come out it with such primitive longing, which it did, but um, we're able to to work with it. And, uh, I had him going to fantasy as I'm working with his body to see if we can't redo some of that edible energy. Uh, and uh, it's very exciting to work that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was part of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, there's so many variables here. It's hard to say. Um, the woman that I described at the beginning, who was the computer analyst, who um, had to figure out everything logically and orderly. Uh, she got mad at me all the time because I wouldn't give her answers. She was so sure that there was an answer and that I was withholding it. Um, she was very influenced by a father who was quite authoritative and she had identified with that. And... Um, I guess he seemed to have the answers. It was very hard for her to relate to uh, my fearness in the sense of just kind of waiting and letting something come up and letting it happen. I don't know if that's answering your question. There's so many variables here. It's very hard to, to be specific. I'm afraid my mind after today is a little... <laughs> yeah. Yes, um, I find very often, not always, because of course the imaginal can work in a very intuitive way, uh, and you can have all sorts of marvelous dreams and not be terribly related to your body, but for some people, more than others, they are intimately connected. Um, and body feel, body consciousness, uh, if it's lost, uh, also um, inhibits the person from feeling their imaginal level. Um, I think of one man, um, quite conservative in nature, um, very um, skeptical of body work. As a matter of fact, uh, don't work that way with him. Uh, and uh, he can't. He he didn't have any memories back before 12 years old except one that came up through a dream image of a, um, of a toy tank that he remembered getting for Christmas. That was the, can you imagine? I mean, I can't imagine it because I can remember so well what happened to me as a child. But he had no memory. And if you look at his body, you can see how repressed the juiciness of him was. Uh, his jaw tightened up. And every time he would get, start to get expansive, um, in his body posture, he would start to hold on to his hand like it wasn't permitted. 
And um, one day when he was, um, I guess, tired or something and his defenses were down, I suggested he go back to that toy tag and imagine holding it in his hands and getting the feel of it, getting down in his imagination and playing on the floor with it. And he began to remember the room that he had played in. He began to remember his father and uncle coming in and winding it up too tight and it breaking against a wall. And then he went into the other rooms of the house and he was able to see his mother in various, so various ways. So he was able to move back to his actually sensuously experiencing the, the one memory that he had. Uh, another man who came to me, who was very cut off from the imaginal world in his childhood, ex- kind of expansive nature, um, brought in a dream in which he was being held up by a robber who was pointing a gun at his back. Now, you know, that's a very easy dream to interpret. You can say, well, this is your aggressive shadow and it's coming toward you from the unconscious and it's want something from you and it's take, going to take your energy away, your money, and so forth. But some instinct said to me, said to me, I can't even speak straight, um, I asked him, why don't you do that? Put your hands above your head. And he did. You can often do that with a body image in a dream. Uh, and he did. And he exaggerated it. And then he remembered. I mean, the kinest, it was in his body, kinesthetically. It was, it hadn't ever come in an image before. And he remembered when he was little, and this was the first childhood memory that he could come up with, when his father was angry with him, when he did the least little thing wrong, like spilling milk at the table. And he remembered he would run from the table, hands, you know, clutching his ears, and his father's voice kind of coming into him like a knife as he ran to his bedroom to shut out the sound. So that um, from a, a body, you know, in the muscles, to actually do something brought back the memory. It's fascinating to me that that's what happens. On the other hand, if you've got someone that fantasizes and images all over the place and is not grounded, you can ground that in the body. Um, and I remember uh, I had a bit of that myself. And, and during a long uh, analytical time when I went very deeply inside myself, I was outside of my culture in Zurich. It was very painful, but it came to me that the only way I could do what Jungians like to call active imagination was to actually sit myself down and imagine that my body was going to these places. Now, that's a very slow way to do active imagination. I think if you put whatever indicator it is on the muscles, you would have seen my arms move and my legs like they were walking to places. Um, but in my imagination, I walked and it grounded the images for me and it was very healing. People go to the most incredible places and sometimes my hand on them gives them the assurance that they can go and experience some real terror and that I will bring them back if it gets too scary or frightening. Um, so I work a lot with bo- images that come up out of the body. Sometimes a person's first experience of the other in themselves or that imaginary realm is to talk to a chronic body tension or to a headache or to a pain. I remember I had one woman who um, had such tightness across her sinuses and a lot of pain, and she just kind of stayed with that, and nothing came and nothing came, and then finally she she was able to burst into tears, and she remembered uh, it felt like a very, very small child that had cried and no one had come, and so she stopped crying. Um, 
And it, uh, I can give you example after example. A woman that I was working with the other day had a pain in her head, and it came down around her jaw. And sometimes you can have a person exaggerate that. And she did, and she said, it feels just like a tight bonnet that someone put around me and then tied it tight. And that may have been slow, but um, it also, as she grimaced her face, I can't even do it, it hurts me so much. Um, the way she grimaced, she said, you know what that is? That's when I cried and the tears dried up and the sun dried up and nothing is left but just the, the grimace of rage without any place to go. And she got into that from the tightness in the head. Um, so um, that's more than answering your question. I'll, I'll work with that again again tomorrow. Especially if, if the person is, is um, has some kind of a narcissistic personality disorder, is kind of merged and doesn't really have an experience of what the other is, it's absolutely amazing for them to find that parts of their body will speak to them, for example, or an image will come up. They will have an experience of the other that's truly amazing for them, and it will help them then, I think, to relate to the other in the outside world, too. Are we doing a few more? Well, I will tomorrow more. Um, basically, one of the reasons, I'll, I'll just say one more uh, thing about it, that the father can't take that nose is that the plucking of it is breaking the incest taboo. Um, that is a rose that mothers give each other, that fathers don't give to daughters. And uh, it cannot be had through the father-daughter relationship. And if the father crosses over the boundaries and seduces the daughter, either actually or, or you know, in imagination, that's very difficult uh, for the daughter to handle. So the plucking of the rose is uh, not for the father. That's another meaning of the rose. It's breaking the incest too. But I'll, I'll do more of that tomorrow too. Yeah. when fathers do more care of children uh, that that can happen much more and I've seen fathers taking up the slack and the daughters would be and sons would be much worse off if, if they hadn't uh, a lot of I see a lot of the feminine stuff coming to the daughter through the father for example a lot of real tenderness that the mother didn't have um no, 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 oh, no. A father that can handle his feeling, uh, uh, and the daughter needs someone to practice with, and the father needs to be able to stand there and be there and hug her and hold her and feel very comfortable about that without crossing over the boundary. Yeah. How much more time do I have? One more.
Um, what I was relating that to um, was my experience of working with male patients who have a very hard time connecting uh, with their own instinctuality, with their own aggressiveness. And it often goes back to, um, we definitely thought of it here, a mother who uh, had, um, could not permit her son to have that side. So what I'm doing is just sort of metaphorically saying, this is like, this is like um, bewitching the son out of his own uh, expansive, sort of aggressive, uh, instinctual side. Does that answer at all? Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Um, you're all very receptive. I hope I'll, uh, hope I'll see some of you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. The content of today's lecture is copyright and need a green. For more analytical psychology lectures, visit our website, yogchicago.org. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org.